Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Daniel Storey, the author and columnist, and by Seb Stafford-Braw, editor of TIFO Football. What a week. What a weekend to come. Miracles are unforgettable, but it turns out they're repeatable. Liverpool and Tottenham made children of us all. Roll on Madrid. But first, the Premier League title deciders. Liverpool return to Anfield to play Wolves on Sunday. They need Brighton to produce their own minor miracle against Manchester City. Now, this is an awful cliche, but it's appropriate. Football's been the winner, hasn't it, Dan? It has. It, it feels like whatever the super clubs and the super rich try and do to drag the game down and homogenise and sanitise it, football seems to find a way of making its magic shown in the end. It has been an incredible midweek. Uh, I was at Anfield and it didn't feel like that would ever be topped. Um, I think it probably is the greatest night at Anfield. And then 24 hours later, you know the unthinkable happens again. And I saw a tweet on Thursday morning that said, it was only three days ago that Vincent Company scored that mm. goal for Manchester City. And I thought, yeah, it's been a long week, hasn't it? It's mm. been great. The human reaction to those events has been immense. You know, Pochettino's tears, you know, the cop in full voice. I hear stories of people almost sitting catatonic on their settees watching those in the aftermath of those games. How did you, because, you know, let's get it out in the open. You're a Spurs fan. What were you like immediately that goal went in? Uh, it spun me completely, Mike. I, I didn't really know how to respond. I um, we were saying before we started recording, I, I had an article to write in the aftermath. And ordinarily, I'm pretty good. I just um, take what I've seen and, and, and go straight into it. But it, it's such a, it was such a unique situation that I, I didn't really know how to gather my thoughts. Um, I felt very emotional. I'm, I'm not a, an emotional man, um, but it, it, it deeply affected me. Uh, partly that was because of um, you know, uh, the, the, the reactions of Pochettino and the players and it being my team and, and you know, that kind of thing. But also because it was, it was an alien feeling to me. Uh, my, my lifetime as a Tottenham fan has taught me that on those occasions, that's when it goes wrong. Ours are the players who are face down on the turf while the celebrations are going around them. And to see uh, what I know about, you know, the processes which have gone into this, um, the types of people that have been behind it and the admiration I have for them, 
and the culmination in this this you know this, this crescendo it, it was it was very affecting um and i think you know as a tottenham fan you'd have to to have a heart of stone to resist that it was uh it's one of the happiest moments of my life not <laughs> i have no problem admitting that at all you're going back to anfield on sunday mm. dan what do you expect to find a strange mood kind of i i suspect it will be after Lord Mayor's show, and also slightly anticlimactic because I don't think they'll win the Premier League. But there's clearly such a rush of gratitude and goodwill that has come out of Tuesday night that it, I think it will also be a celebration of the season. We sometimes say... We, and a celebration of the club and yeah, what it we, represents. We, we, we sometimes say with, with funerals, we say, oh, it's a celebration of life rather than a, a mourning. And I think it will be a very similar atmosphere at Anfield. I don't think they'll win the Premier League title, but this will be a celebration of a truly astonishing season. Liverpool were second favourites for the league title at the start of the season. They probably will finish second, but once you scratch below the surface of that, those two facts, um, it's been extraordinary. And Jurgen Klopp and his, his pretty unique brand of man management have been um, the catalysts for that. So, yeah, I think it will be a strange mood um, depending on what happens early on at, at Brighton, obviously. Um, but actually, in some ways, an early you know, two early Manchester City goals would actually let everyone's, you know, everyone's tension would dissipate and they might well just have a, a bit of a carnival. Mm. I suppose if this season proves anything, it's the myth of second being the best loser. The second isn't the best loser in this one, is it? No, I don't think so. I mean, there was, there was a lot of uh, mirth about that Liverpool fan who called in to, to, to request a, a joint trophy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yes, that was very funny. Um, but at the same time, there's a, there's a point there. It's an amazing points total um, to gather. Oh, 97 points. Brian. It's uh, the, the the level of quality at the top of the league, Mike. I mean, I, I know that um, I know that Liverpool have surrendered a, a 10 point, 11 point gap, but I can't for the life of me remember where that happened, because the the, the, the level of excellence has been so sustained for such a long period of time now that I, I there are no there are no decisive games. I know in the past when when Newcastle lost their lead over Manchester United, there were critical moments when that collapse began but I would you can't say that a team that have won 97 points have, have, have collapsed or that there have been sort of you know any any there's, there hasn't been sort of any fragility along the way I mean there have been the odd draw and you know that but it's um it's a, an amazing achievement I hope that doesn't get overlooked if they don't win the title mm. so, you know, looking at you know social media especially there's been a, obviously an awful lot of chatter around the whole the whole week mm-hmm. one phrase sort of stood out for me, Klopp the German Shankly. Mm. Is that hyperbole or is there any, anything resembling the truth in that? Uh, I think Shankly's... Uh, his connection was born out of a, a kind of inbuilt socialism that he deeply believed in, that, that Liverpool Football Club was an extension of Liverpool supporters, which was an extension of football supporters, which was an extension of, um, to him, the working class. So I think it was probably it probably had deeper social roots with Shankly, but he Klopp is relying upon the same principles of of man management and of bringing everyone together because he believes that is his best way of of making Liverpool better than they are, and he does. He, you know, in his press conference after the game, he um, Johnny Liu at the Independent asked, "Could this have been done in an empty stadium?" And he kind of said, "Of course it couldn't." You know, this was finally this was everyone behind us behind one goal making it happen uh, and that's very special and and without resorting too much to, to cliche and rival supporters mock Liverpool for this but 
it is a special club. It really is. You know, it's not necessarily unique, the feelings they have, but it is special. And by harnessing what makes them special, you, you know, you can give a team an extra edge. And, and that's exactly what they needed on Tuesday. Mm. When you have games like that, um, you know, there is this sense of momentum, isn't there? Yeah. And is that part of Klopp's sort of ra rationale that he's able to harness that emotion? Because Liverpool is an emotionally driven club and you could almost get overwhelmed by that. Without question, I thought that was a big factor in the game. It was very interesting to see, you know, not just um, the lack of uh, attacking thrust Barcelona had, but the nature of the mistakes which they gave up, which was so un uncharacteristic and were really symptomatic of a team cracking. Not just under pressure, but the kind of the... I say the sensory assault of being in that environment, facing a Liverpool side who, you know, do exact a, you know, a, um, do take a, uh, you know, a very physical approach to their game. They, you know, they ask uh, their opposition to to match them physically, um, but also being in that place and the the noise inside Anfield is very different. It's almost like a it's like a feverish environment, um, and you see, you know. Uh, Wijnaldum having a, you know, essentially a free header by the penalty spot, having stood in the same position for 30 seconds. You see the nature of the, the fourth goal that goes in. You think, this is a team buckling under what they're experiencing. And so, absolutely, it's, um, you know, Klopp, when, when he, um, I think when he was interviewing for the job, and I read this in Rafa Honigstein's biography of him, he talked about activating the Anfield crowd. You know, his, he's always obviously been, uh, oratory is a big part of his management, but the effect of a crowd is fundamental to his style of management. It, it tallies with the way he wants to play the game. And so what a great success this has been. And yeah, as Dan said, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, the two are really inseparable. Mm. And also another gauge of managerial efficiency, to put it mildly, mm -hmm. is the way that unlikely heroes just appear, like mm. Divock Origi, mm. Joel Matip, people like that Mrs. coming in. Soko. Well, exactly. Yeah, but it, it's people, and, and that to me is is part of uh, you know, of the genius of it all. Is that players that you really, if you looked at them and analysed them quite coldly, you'd think, well, there's the weakness and that's the weakness, yeah. but they just come and yeah. basically we, demand the occasion. Yeah, and we I think we forget sometimes that football players, almost as one, are football fans. So if you create a team that is um, objectively likable to a neutral supporter, and that doesn't really exist, but let's say a neutral supporter. If you create a team that's likeable, then the people on the fringes of that squad want to be in that team. If they see a team going places under a manager that's going places, they want to be part of it. And then, so it's hardwired into them that when they do get a chance, they're desperate to take it. Because if you're Divock Origi, you want to stay in that team. You know, you, it might be a, a fraction of a chance because of the front three they have, but... If you score two goals in the Champions League semi-final second leg, you give managers something to think about. It's no surprise the day after the game, newspaper stories linked Divock Origi getting a new contract at Liverpool. Mm. That's what you can do, but that's what Klopp has done because he's been created an environment that players are desperate to be part of that team. Mm. And also, you've got people prepared to do almost the unthinkable. You know, Trent Alexander-Arnold on that corner. OK, there was some hint at Barcelona's almost indolence at set-pieces. Yeah. But to have the presence of mind and the nerve to actually produce that under that pressure is amazing. To have the freedom to do it as well, yeah. to, to obviously feel that you have your manager's trust, because that is a, a great attacking situation. If you're Liverpool and you're putting Virgil van Dijk and John Matip, you're bringing them 60 yards up the pitch, and the game is poised at where it was, and you're a, you're a player at that stage of your career, and you feel the freedom to say, right, well, I'm going to take this risk, 
I mean, if you look, at, look back at it now, you see the way he sells it. And if Gerard Piquet steps across and thumps that into the cop, then it's a waste. And then, I don't know, I, I don't... It's a very hard thing to describe, but I don't think there are many players of an equivalent age who would, who would be doing that in a Champions League semi-final second leg. Mm. Um, and that's another thing to attribute to Klopp. Players have that freedom. Mm. Let's look at City. They're insatiable, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Um, they will be, and Pep Guardiola will be, deeply bitter uh, and should be about missing out on this Champions League midweek because they'll feel that they should be there and they will also feel that if they were there that they'd be in the final. Um, but they have to make up for that now and, and the moment they went out of that Champions League final, person, uh, that Champions League quarterfinal, uh, uh, they were shoo-ins for both the league title and the FA Cup for me. Now I may be proved spectacularly wrong by that but it has recharged them to go again and to prove that they are not also runs, which in the great story of this midweek, they are also runs. It's, yeah. it's, this is their chance to seize the weekend news. Mm. Well, as you say, Vinny who? <laughs> you know, it's, it's which is desperately unfair, by the <laughs> way. Well, it, it is, but then I, I, I felt that was symptomatic of where they are. Like, I, I agree with Dan in the sense that since that quarterfinal, um, there's been a kind of a, a, a palpable desperation to their football, a real urgency, a kind of, right, well, now the treble is, is a, yeah, a, a prerequisite. We have to win this. But at the same time, I feel also they haven't quite been the same. I think some of their precision has uh, has disappeared and they've been not clumsy. They're still a very attractive football team. But what made them great prior to that was a sort of a bloodless way of playing the game. And so I've got a little bit of an asterisk against their, their game against, uh, at Brighton the weekend because Brighton are safe. We know this. But at the same time, despite this season, for all intents and purposes, being over, they've become very stubborn. Their performance at, at the Emirates um, last weekend was amazing. Given their situation, their, their level of commitment was absolutely staggering. Um, and so if they're able to take that into the weekend in front of their own crowd and that tallies with this slight, um, just a, a slight wastefulness, an inability to create the kind of chances they were six weeks ago, Let's see. I don't see them getting two early goals. I think Man City will struggle there. I, I expect them to win. I expect them to win the title. But I'm not quite as certain of it as I thought I would be. How good are Manchester City in the, in the grand scheme of things? You're looking at past teams, past champions. How good are they? I think they're exceptional because I think they've actually changed this season. Um, I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago, which feels like it's <laughs> feels like a <laughs> half a year ago now. But it, this season, Pep Guardiola has tried to rely more on those principles that he he learned from, from Johan Cruyff. This idea of total football, this idea of players in multi positions. If you look at the sheer number of players who have played in multiple positions in this team this season, and that they've done that. They're, they're probably going to achieve 98 points with Kevin De Bruyne effectively missing two-thirds of the season, Fernandinho being injured at times, Sergio Aguero being injured at times, David Silva being injured at times, John Stones, John as well. Stones being in and out yeah. of the team. Their first-choice left-back, Benjamin Mendy, pretty much out for the whole season and not really fancied when he's played. It's an incredible achievement because it would, be no, it would have been no surprise for them to slip away when those injuries set in and when fatigue set in. But yeah, they are an incredibly well-drilled team. They, the, the, to me, there's a, a, a weird, disparate nature between the football they play, which is inherently beautiful to watch, and also the fact that it comes out of being incredibly well-drilled by Guardiola, this, this commitment he demands. 
Um, this, which is, is goes right back to Cruyff and Rinas Michels and, and everything that he wanted in a football team. So I honestly believe that they, they get better again in the league next season. I think I just I, I don't see where this team gets weaker. I really don't. The only issue is central midfield, and I think they will buy a player, possibly Declan Rice. I think they will try and buy Ben Chilwell at left back um, to solve the Benjamin Mendy problem, and I think it just makes them better. Mm. And you've also got a leader on the pitch. Now, I, I was a bit flippant about Vinnie Company, but and you know there's going to be one X-rated challenge at some stage where he's lunging <laughs> in a bit, but. As a leader, he's empathetic, but he's also forceful. And what I think we're seeing there is almost succession planning. You know, he could fit into a, dy a dynastic operation, couldn't Absolutely. he? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's... Uh, and I, I think we spoke about this last time I was on, Mike. It, it's, it's very, very important. You've got to... Particularly a club like that, where the mobility happens... The upward mobility has happened so quickly... Um, and the distance between what Manchester City are now and what they were is so dramatic, you've got to, to, to develop and place these kind of semi-permanent figures along the way. And company's an ideal person. Um, he's been there for the duration of this kind of this, uh, second act, if you like. Um, and also these little moments that he's left, he's left along the way. I mean, obviously, um, the goal against Leicester City, but also in... The previous uh, championship campaigns, his header against Manchester United. These are iconic moments in Manchester City's history, and mm -hmm. keeping someone like that at the club beyond their playing career is absolutely imperative. Mm. He, there isn't at the moment a, a statue outside the Etihad. They don't have one to Fanny Lee or Colin Bell mm. or or anyone, and and he is statue material. He is the yeah. one. Um, and in any, as, as Seb says, you could choose any one of four or five moments to yeah. to immortalise. Mm. Mm. But if you look at that, you know, we obviously people concentrate on the amount of money in the you know, unlimited budget. But money's one thing. Having a clear strategic purpose is another. And that's what they've got, haven't they? You know, you look at it now, they're, they're looking at the Benfica style of, uh, yeah, uh, Felix, mm. 19 years old, another five to ten year player. They've got, they've got everything worked out. Yeah, they... they, they, they... <laughs> It's impossible not to make the comparison with Manchester United. It really is. Mm -hmm. um, they are both clubs with an extraordinary amount of money situated three or four miles apart. Who, um, and Manchester City, wrote their own light blueprint for exactly what they wanted to do. They went to Barcelona because they thought they were doing they were the best at doing what they did, and they cherry picked exactly what worked. And what they couldn't cherry pick, they replicated. And the difference between that and Manchester United, who seem to be working on a sort of reactive, make it up as we go along yeah. um, structure plan, um, is is it's night and day. And it isn't easy. You can have all the money in the world and waste it. Um, and they haven't wasted it. And for that, they do deserve credit. Mm. Let's stay on Manchester United. <laughs> That's rotting. That club is rotting from the head downwards, isn't it? Every week there's something new which just makes me shake my head. I mean, this latest thing with this uh, latest story really is the director of football issue, or sporting mm. director, however, however you want to term it. And it's um, the, the, the primacy afforded to the ex-player is astonishing. Forget the size of the football club. Think of Manchester United as a business, as a multinational entity, and the levels of trust which are being placed in people who don't have the required experience for certain roles. In some cases, though, that's rumour and conjecture. I accept that. But that you have an entire football department which is not being run by someone who is professionally qualified to run it mm. is... I don't, 
I don't have the vocabulary for that, Mike. It's <laughs> absolutely amazing. And, and also, you know, what makes it doubly so is there is now, um, as Dan alluded to, there is now a sustained pattern of failure. Um, and the, the same mistakes being made again and again and again, and yet no one ever seems to correct it. I don't, logically, I don't have an answer for you. I don't understand why that is. Whether it's because Manchester United now have different focuses, and so adding a football specialist into the equation creates an inconvenience, an obstruction perhaps. I don't know, but it, there is, I haven't heard a reasonable justification for it. I'll put it that way. Mm. While, while the club makes money, the, the money it does make, yeah. um, on-pitch failure will be, you know, is a fly in the ointment, but it's not a disaster. Um, but they have too much money, because if they had less, then it would force them to plan properly and it would force them to put a long-term structure in place to make things work. Um, having this much money allows for extraordinary extraordinary complacency that, that then just blends into incompetence and mm. that's what's reigned over the last half decade mm. and more. Mike, you know, you know, you know what the sort of, I, th I think the worst point of the season was, was the decision to um, give Oli Solskjaer the job permanently. Not that decision, but the timing of it. What would have happened if you'd said, right, end of the season, let's see what it is as a, as a full body of work. He, he wasn't getting poached. He wasn't getting tempted back to mould by a, a better financial offer. He would have been there, and because of his loyalty to Manchester United, he would have taken the job. Why, why not defer that until you've got your sporting director in place, you've got your specialist that you need in that department above him, and then you make an informed decision? What, what on earth was the basis for that? Mm. I, I, again, haven't heard a reasonable explanation for it. Well, if you look at you know, Alexis Sanchez, is that the worst transfer of all time? Uh, it is and it isn't. It isn't... <laughs> The reason people would say it's the worst is because of the extraordinary financial wastage, but that's the one area in which Manchester yeah, United... Yeah, it doesn't matter. Have, have, yeah. Doesn't, it doesn't matter. But the message it sends, the message it's reportedly sent to, to David De Gea and to Paul Pogba and to anyone else in that squad, he thinks, well, hang on a minute, if he's on £400,000 a week and if he gets £75,000 just to play, yeah. why don't I? Um, but also the message of... Um, the, the kind of demotivating message that sends that's, that rewards... Failure, effectively, um, is is truly extraordinary, and and they will hope to move him on this summer. And if they do, then that will be a very positive move. But they're going to struggle because if you're Alexis Sanchez, you know we we always criticise players. The, the the best example I can give is the the Sunderland documentary with Jack Rodwell, where the club are begging him to leave, and you have some sympathy with the club because you you want a player to go and want to play football, but also. You gave him that contract. Yeah. You mm. thought it was important yeah. enough and valuable enough to give him that contract. And having done so, if you've changed your mind, maybe he hasn't. So they deserve to fully pay for that mistake because only by fully paying for these mistakes will they actually learn. Only by finishing 10th in the Premier League will they actually learn, yeah. I think. So, yes, it's a disaster, is <laughs> my short answer. <laughs> yeah. You went all passionate. Yeah, that. I that did, yeah. That was great. So, so are you looking forward to Tottenham having their first £400,000 a week player? <laughs> No, 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 not so much. No, I um, look. I, I don't expect the floodgates to open, and uh, you know, uh, Daniel Levy to throw money. I thought it was very good with Pochettino making sure that he was front and centre of all those celebrations in the dressing room and on the pitch. Deserves to be, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because uh, well, I, I think Daniel Levy gets a little bit of a hard press. Like he, uh, you know, uh, there are things which I would take issue with, and there are frustrations leading from uh, derived from his chairmanship. But uh, the balance of sporting achievement and infrastructural uh, improvement is amazing. To, uh, for not, 
Tottenham being in Champions League final is a, an astonishing thing, and I, I can't really believe I'm sitting here talking about it. But at the same time, for this to happen now in their history, given what this season has been like and the group of players that have been assembled, it's an amazing thing. It uh, really is. Mm. Because their form's been shocking recently, isn't it? Mm. Like seven defeats in 11 or something like that? Yeah, I, they are, I, I, I can't really explain Wednesday because that first half they looked yeah. as fatigued as we know they are. Christian Eriksen and Deli Ali are now starting to have their whole reputations damaged by yeah. being flogged and being played every week and being... You know, we're not talking. I think football fans sometimes make it a, a very, uh, a very emphatic thing. They say, "Oh, he, he's knackered," which means he's playing at forty percent. This is not that. It's the difference between five and three percent. It's the not quite being able to make the pass, not quite making the challenge that stands out in the Premier League, and they are absolutely shattered. Which is why Wednesday was so extraordinary. You know, I, I was at um, the Bournemouth game last Saturday, and. That second half, I don't think I've ever seen a Tottenham team work harder um, and get less as a result from it. When uh, I saw them come off the pitch and Lucas Moura was pretty much crawling off the field, Ericsson too. I mean, it was actually the performance I'm, I'm probably most proud of uh, as a fan this season. But the idea that that could translate into what Wednesday night became, is I, there's no explanation for that. It's crazy. Mm. Pochettino, you know, his reaction was visceral, wasn't it? Mm. What has this season taught us about him? Uh, I think he's been incredibly dignified yeah. because he could easily have, have engineered for a move to Manchester United. And I think if he had engineered for a move to Manchester United, he would have got it. If he'd have made it very clear that he was interested in that job, either privately or publicly, I think he would have got it. Um, so incredible loyalty to Spurs to stay there. Um, but also, this idea that it was... Pochettino wanted to spend 200 million last summer and Daniel Levy wouldn't let him is a nonsense. Pochettino likes having a small squad that he can bring under his wing and can create a team that is in his own vision. You know, hardworking, pressing, committed, yeah. um, no little natural talent, but natural talent very much accompanied by damn hard work. And I think it suits him. Uh, I think he, he needs to spend more this summer if he's going to stay, and I think he will. But this suits him as well. This is the perfect squad for him. It isn't a Champions League final squad. Of course it isn't. But then this is an exceptional Champions League season. So, yeah, I, I, I already was a convert and I already thought he was the best manager in the Premier League and I still do. Mm. Three players, four players you need? Yeah, at least. I mean, one of the things Stan touched on there is, is the decision not to strengthen the squad was his. Mm. Money was made available to him. That People have got this the wrong way around. It's not, you know, there's no money to spend. Go and make what you, you can from the existing squad. Um... I think this summer, um, the midfield needs to be rebuilt very clearly. Uh, Mr Dembele has gone. Harry Winks, is a, he's got long-term issues. I think that's becoming evident. Uh, Victor Wanyama is uh, certainly coming towards the end of his sort of top-flight usefulness. Um, so there needs to be major surgery. I also think um, there needs to be at least two full-backs coming to the club this summer because so much of Pochettino's football relies on the thrust from those positions because there's very little natural width. They've got a little bit of it in Mora or so on, depending on where you play them. But if you think back to probably their brightest moment as a, as a spectacle, you know how much of that team's football went through Carl Walker and Danny Rose. Danny Rose, who was then a few years younger and before his serious injury. He played very, very well on Wednesday, but you know not quite at the same level. Um, so there needs to be significant investment. I think also, um, depending on Christian Eriksen's contract situation, there needs to be a, a contingency in there for 
you cannot keep running this player dry every single season because Ericsson, again, played well on Wednesday, but he has looked exhausted for weeks. Um, and, you know, the odd 30-yarder or the odd, you know, good set-piece delivery shouldn't disguise that this, you can't keep doing this. Players, I mean, red zone is a bit of a, you know, bit management speaky, but it exists for a reason. You, you, can't, you can't keep taking risks with players of, players of that calibre. Mm. Your Pochettino, do you take the risk and play Harry Kane in the final? Yeah, I think if he's fit, he'll play. Or if he's half fit, he'll play. Um, I think if Kane makes it clear that he's prepared to put UEFA Nations League football health at risk for Tottenham, Pochettino will respond by saying, OK, if you're prepared to do that, then I will pick you for this game. And I think there's no doubt about that. And also, Fernando Llorente was a very useful option off the bench <laughs> against Ajax. He won headers, he caused problems. And, um, but I think that's a lot less likely against Virgil van Dijk. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think Kane will play. If, if, if nothing else, it gives... I mean, a half-fit Kane is as good as a fully-fit Llorente, I would say. So, if, if nothing else other than giving Spurs a lift of, you know, we got through to the final without this man, let's get him back in. Yes. And, and also, the fact that they have a, a three-week, basically a two-, three-week gap after the last Premier League game to allow Deli Alli to get a bit of a rest, to allow Christian Eriksen to have a bit of a recharge is, is huge. Mm. Do you think they'll play pretty much a shallow team on Sunday? Yes, I think so. I mean, after the game, I've already got Everton fans on my Twitter talking about, right, no tackles, lads, because obviously, you know, um, I think so. I don't think it will be, I don't think it'll be an under-21 side. I think you've got to be respectful of the, you know, the competition. Um, but I don't expect to see Mora. I don't expect to see Ericsson. Uh, Son is suspended, of course, because of his red card. No one fourth, unfortunately, <laughs> also suspended. Um, but yeah, a, um, a, a sensible team. Uh, it's a it's a box ticking exercise, but one with you know the Champions League final in mind, quite rightly. Mm. Look across North London, Arsenal did the job really efficiently mm. uh, in Germany. Um, how good could they be if they completely reshape that defence? I think they could be anything they want to be if they get a new defence, but I don't think they're going to get a new defence. I think current reports suggest that Emery will have. 40 million plus money generated from player sales to bring in, which is um, probably less than Fulham spent last summer. So this is a, a man who I, I've, I've defended him all season and then in the last few weeks I've watched Arsenal tumble away and let everything slip through their hands. So I'm a little bit cagey to, to keep praising him. But um, that defence is, I don't think it's in the top 10 defences in the Premier League. So... Uh, I, I very much sympathise with what he's dealing with. My, my criticism of Arsenal, it's, it's what I wrote at the Brighton game last weekend, is that if you grade out the kits and grade out the faces of the top six, you could pick out Manchester City performance. You could pick out a Tottenham performance and a Liverpool performance and maybe even a Chelsea performance with Jorginho passing in midfield. I don't think I could pick out an Arsenal performance unless Shikodra Mustafi made an horrific mistake and then I'll go, that is an Arsenal performance. Well, you have plenty to, to choose <laughs> exactly, from, Exactly, yeah. Uh, and there isn't, there isn't this identity. We, we're used to these dogmatic managers now, <laughs> Mauricio Sarri and Klopp and Guardiola. Emery isn't one of those and that just creates a sense that everything is drifting a little bit rather than he's, he's in command of everything, and that probably needs to change this summer. Mm. What do they do about Meza Ozil? I mean, I, personally, I think you've got to get him off your wage bill. I mean, this is, one of, this is kind of the, the, the root of Arsenal's financial issues at the moment. 
not issues, but, you know, their, their, their inability to spend properly across the course of a summer. Um, I think Ozil is still an excellent player, despite, you know, his regular off days. But the wages are... I mean, the wages essentially meant that Aaron Ramsey had to go to Juventus. And if I had to choose between the two, I think I'd take Ramsey every day of the week. Um, at the same time, I'm not sure what the market's like for him. I don't know. I mean, maybe there's a move back to Germany. I wouldn't have thought that's what he wanted after last summer and, you know, all the things that happened. They won't pay the money. Well, they I wouldn't have thought so. I mean, there's, there's probably only one club in Germany that, um, that, would, that would do that. And I don't think Erzl's going to be wanting to play for that club anytime soon. I don't know. Um, I, it's, it's, not, it's not exactly like the Alexis Sanchez situation at Manchester United, but it's fairly similar in the sense that you've got a player on a, on a contract that he just isn't going to be offered anywhere else. So I don't know what the answer is. Mm. Chelsea, the fourth arm of the, of the Premier League takeover of Europe. Mm. I've never seen a team get to a major final in such underwhelming fashion. No. You know, challenged only by Arsenal. Um, yeah, it, I, I've said all season, I do have sympathy for Richie Sarri. He is a, an incredibly dogmatic manager who needs certain ingredients to make that dogma reality and make it successful. And he was appointed three weeks before Chelsea's first game of the mm -hmm. season mm -hmm. and given one element of that Napoli team, which persuaded some Chelsea supporters that they had all they needed to be Napoli 2.0 and it was never going to happen. He has made some strange decisions. I'm glad to see Ruben Loftus-Cheek in the team now. Uh, I'm glad to see that Ross Barkley's come through a little bit. I'm glad to see Olivier Giroud is at least starting in the Europa League over Gonzalo Higuain. Uh, and he is, he's very much juries out. But if Chelsea finished third in the Premier League and win the Europa League and got to another domestic final, if this was, again, if we grayed out all the managers and said to Chelsea, would you take that at the start of the season, they'd have snapped your hand off for that. So. Absolutely. We have to give him some patience because the result is king and, and he's come through on that. Mm. Were you surprised that he said no, but no thanks to um, Roma? Mm, yes and no. I mean, I, I think Roma's a little bit of a basket case club. I mean, in terms of what's happened there over the last five years. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 think, I think Chelsea's quite a difficult place to walk away from at the moment because it, it's, it's such an opportunity for him. And I think there's a kind of, there'll be a stubbornness to him now. He's been, because of the nature of the criticism he's faced, basically he, he's sort of, his entire, over the last six months, his entire um, body of work has kind of been dismissed by, not just by the English press, but by fans. I mean, I've been in a stadium where, home and away, where he has received pretty... Um, bilious abuse from the Chelsea supporters and very specific abuse about his style of football and that is his in, in sort of the in, in European football at the moment that is his identity so if you attack that identity and you, you dismiss Sarri Ball as a myth I mean surely from a sort of a personal pride standpoint you want to stay there and correct it and you know I, I think really what, what's the motivation to go back to Italy I don't think I don't think Serie A is a winnable league for Roma at the moment Chelsea probably not going to win the Premier League, but you can achieve a lot more at Chelsea, as he's proving. Dan, Dan just made the point. They are a startling average football team who are supported by one truly world-class player and, and the level of his performance. And yet, third place in the Premier League, they might have won the League Cup and they might win Europa League. So, you know, it's, uh, he's made the case for staying in mm. a strange sort of way. <laughs> yeah, Eden Hazard. Mm. It's going to get quite messy, this one, with Real Madrid, isn't it? Yeah, I think he goes. 
uh, firstly, and I think Chelsea have accepted that he goes, but there are a way of doing things and there are hoops that they will make Real Madrid jump through, not least um, the the barrier of, of 100 million that I think they will want mm. for him. Um, Despite all the hype and all the history, mm -hmm. can Madrid afford 100 million? I, th I was talking to someone on Tuesday night, Anfield, uh, Spanish journalist, and yes, I think they can afford, even after buying Militao from Porto, they can afford, yes, him. Uh, I don't think they can afford a Kylian Mbappe or a Neymar, despite what the propaganda might suggest. I think they can afford Eden Hazard and I think that's I think Eden Hazard knows that and I think Chelsea probably know that. They will squeeze out all the money they can, but they should also they should also have a date at which point they say right, we need to put this to bed because they do not want their summer to be defined by Eden Hazard leaving. They want to be their summer to be defined by how they respond to Eden Hazard leaving and that means bringing in um young hungry players. They've already got Christian Pulitz so it's coming in. They're probably now going to keep Hudson Odoi. So they they can build something new. And Sarri wants players he can mould. Um, but yeah, I think to my mind they're losing the best player in the Premier League, which is in terms of natural talent, which is a heck of a thing to do when your fans are already worried about the manager. It's a big leap of faith this summer. Mm. Talking of fans, allocation, ticket allocation, with sixteen sixteen thousand odd for the main final, six thousand tickets in a. For, for each of the clubs, Arsenal and Chelsea? An absolute disgrace. Unbelievable. There's no other way of describing it. It's an absolute joke. It's a uh, an issue which uh, UEFA deserve to be flogged about. It is like this is the pinnacle of a season. If you're a if you're a Tottenham fan or, or a um, a Liverpool fan and you can't go there because most of the stadium is being taken up by corporate guests, what are you playing for? What, what is what is what is this? I mean, the Europa League is an even better example of it. So more sort of uh, the winding ways, roads of that competition really do test a fan's patience. And I was speaking to people on the on the train up here today about the cost of actually getting out to the Europa League final, and the amount of money that's being spent. The whole thing is weighted against fans in every aspect. It's just crazy. This is supposed to be an occasion that you remember for the rest of your life. A journey that, you know, if you think about the old days where, you, we, we, you know, the sort of when Clough won his first European Cup and the stories of Nottingham Forest fans sleeping in parks and getting there, you know, by bicycle or swimming and, you know, <laughs> and stuff like that. These are great stories and they, 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 they deepen the game's texture. And it's being taken away because I don't know why. Like, what, what, is, what is the justification for that? It's, it's, it, it actually gets my blood going. It's awful. Really awful. People deserve better. Don't they, they absolutely do. Absolutely. They, they sort of, you know, given what fans have to have to put up with just to get to that point of the season, the amount of money they have to part with, and the sort of the ridiculous travel logistics they have to endure, and and yet, and then there's always a final slap in the face somewhere, isn't there? Mm. Football's all about business models. Outside the top six, let's take three specific clubs: mm -hmm. Watford, Wolves, Leicester. One of those three will make a run at it next season. Mm. Yeah. My hunch is it will be Wolves. Mm. Out of those three, which which club's got the best business model and therefore give, gives them the best opportunity to, to progress? I would choose Watford. I think Leicester's business model relied upon, and this is not taking away their achievement in any way, but it relied upon the unthinkable happening. The unthinkable happened and mm. they have moved on from that and 
you know, very intelligently. Uh, Wolves is relies upon a, a, a relationship, in part relies upon an age, a relationship with a, with a super agent, which um, is just about as modern football as you can get while still remaining reasonably a good news story. Yeah. Watford's, I think, is is intelligent. You know, there's, there was clearly some, some, let's call it murkiness, um, about the nature of their relationships with satellite clubs, with Udinese and with Granada. But now they've established a principle whereby they are one of the only clubs, and, and Southampton did this for a while, that they see selling players as a sign of strength, not weakness. If you sell a player for 30, 40 million, it means that you've done your job correctly. So if they sell Abdullah Decore or Gerard De La Feu this summer, it's because they'll have done things right. Yeah. Which and they probably will, by the way. Which they probably will. And then, but they will also back themselves to use their recruitment processes. Norwich are another club coming up who deserve huge credit for this. Of of seeing their place in football, not being overambitious, mm. not selling themselves short, but saying, this is where we sit now and this is how we can make the most of it. And yeah, to my mind, they are the best running club in the Premier League. Mm. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I mean, I do. I mean, I remember the, um, the, the part of your book when you, when you interviewed Scott Duxbury uh, about this and part of me, as Dan mentioned, it's a little bit modern football for my liking, but it's very logical and very sensible. I like Wolves. I mean, I, I wouldn't take anything away from Watford. I think one of the smartest things Wolves did was, obviously, you know, George Mendes, that, the value of that. But there's risk. significant Chinese money in that club as well, isn't there? Exactly that. I think they, are, um, they have bought the club at a very interesting time when, you know, broadcasting revenue in China for Premier League broadcasting rights has gone through the roof. They're mm -hmm. launching apps. This is a club which is really set up for the future and to, as you put it, make a run at it. Wolves will be a a power in the Premier League right. over the next decade. I, I, I support a club who have an owner who is probably well, as wealthy as you need to be, not as wealthy as, as Fosun, um, but as wealthy as you need to be. And we currently have, a, we've finished ninth in the Championship. We have a squad of 44 players, of which we will add to this summer. Mm -hmm. And we have a manager that no one's particularly sure about and how he fits into the vision of the club. So, as we said at the top of the show, you can have money, it's how you do how it, you how you it. use it, it counts. Just, just remind me, how many years is it since Forrest were in the Premier League? 98-99 uh, <laughs> was our last season. And yet we still, we, but that's it, Wolves, Wolves owners said, we've got no right to be anywhere else. You know, we've got no right to be in the Premier League, we have to do things intelligently. Well, they did it well as well. Like, if you talk to Wolves fans about how they feel about their club, they'll say that they're sort of, their bonds with it are closer than they were under the previous regime. This is not a, a club that, a, a, an ownership structure which has come in, taken what it wants mm. from it and pointed the club in a direction. There's no plastic, them. is there? No, it, it, exactly that. And all the relationships within, the, within this organisation add up. Jeff Shee and the fans, um, Nuno and George, um, you know, and the players as well. It's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful place to be. Some of my best memories of the season have been going to Molyneux and just the atmosphere there and the kind of, this sort of this this tangible sense of optimism. So it's a great experience. Mm. You use the word right. You know they they think they've got the right for things. <laughs> UEFA's plan, in inverted commas, for the Champions League, mm. which mm. basically, or whatever you want to call it, essentially run by twenty-four rich clubs, as a closed shop. That can't be allowed, can it? No. It, well, it, it shouldn't be. Um, but if they want it enough, it, it will be allowed. Um, that's the reality of it. it. It's all very well saying this is wrong and the Champions League this week has shown us that it's a great mm. competition. But, uh, yeah, if they want it enough, it will happen because there is a, an inherent 
because the clubs at the top are now, after the rampant commercialisation, are now businesses, business entities, multinational business entities, they understandably want what will make them the most money and what will, will secure that money for the long term. And this does that. So it's entirely logical. It's entirely predictable. They're doing nothing wrong in a business sense. It's just not football to me. And But the fact that it's not football doesn't seem to matter as much anymore. Yeah. They won't quite kill national leagues, but they'll damage them severely, won't they? Yeah, if they do right. this, especially the ones outside the sort of the, the big three or four. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're if you're if you're reducing the uh, advantages of winning your league, and you are you are quite literally um, implying that winning the Eredivisie is only really a second tier achievement. God, that's damaging. Mm. The whole thing is so depressing. The sort of I, re I read through the sort of the New York Times uh, report mm. on this, and I I read through you know the the intended structure, which just sounds like a kind of you know a multiplied Europa League nightmare, just endless group stages. And it, it makes me... It, I'm, I react in the same way that I do um, uh, to the sort of the, the plans about expanding the World Cup. It's like, great, well, that's ruined then, isn't it? Because that's just not going to be the same. I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't feel myself... I can't imagine myself investing in that kind of competition. Just, I didn't think yeah. anything could be less palatable than, than the Super League. But at least with the Super League, those clubs would take their ball and go and play with it elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. This kind of quasi-wishy-washy diluted solution whereby they, they pander to the, the National League by staying there, but actually in doing so, d inherently demean that competition is the worst of both worlds. Well, it, it's, it's, like, it's like the International Champions Cup through the summer. It's exactly the same thing. And, you know, maybe at some point in the future, they'll, you know, goals will stop mattering and you just, <laughs> revenue will become the, the, the commodity. And, and then eventually just the richest club gets a trophy at the end of the season just because, you know, that will bang on social media or something. And that, that will be it. And, and, and you just think, why? Why? It wasn't, it wasn't broken. People enjoy it. Look at, look at the reaction to it this week. Look at what's been created. And, you know, I say that, loyalties aside, what a wonderful week of football. And at the same time, you want to make sure that it never happens again. Why indeed? The Champions League is special. Ask anyone who watched it in midweek. Don't wreck it through greed and entitlement. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast.